a phone, some device, you'll be looking at the, the scriptures with us this morning. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 14. 2 Samuel chapter 14. Um, if you haven't been with us um, before, if you haven't been with us for very long, we, we just typically are working through a book, kind of chapter by chapter, um, over the long haul, however many weeks or months it, it will take us. And so we've been working through First and now Second Samuel for several months. And what it does is it forces us um, to preach passages we wouldn't typically preach, um, both in difficulty and in, in nuance sometimes. I'm just going, I'm not sure what exactly to do with this passage. It forces us to kind of lean in. Um, and really what it does is I, I hope it brings us um, asking the questions, what does the Word have for us this morning? More so than where do we see ourselves um, in the Word this morning? Because I think if we're, if we're jumping around all the time, often we're, we're really trying to make sure that the message is super applicable for us rather than letting the Word really just speak and, and do what the, the Word does, right, in, in revealing and in bringing hope and peace and healing and conviction. Um, what that's meant is the last three weeks, we've just kind of sucked the air out of the room. Um, we've had three really kind of difficult sermons in a row, um, from David and Bathsheba three weeks ago, um, to David's um, child dying two weeks ago, and then last week to um, a chapter that just involved sexual assault. Um, and, and so just as a, maybe a quick kind of PSA, as we, we lean into such a, a hard passage last week, we really do mean it that this is a safe place. Um, and so we know that it, it, that stirred a lot over the last week of conversations and of um, in, introspection. And so if, if there's anything we can do to serve or to resource, um, please let us know. Um, we want to walk with you. We want to, to do those things. We know that if statistics are true, a high percentage of folks in the room are affected. Um, and so this week we'll be, we'll be continuing the story, and there's a little bit of a reprieve, right? Like it's just not quite as like heavy this week as the last three weeks, because um, it, it's setting up kind of the next chunk of narrative. And so let's pick up in chapter 14. Um, remember, as, as last week as we had the sexual assault, and then David's um, two sons, one of them kills the other one, the one that, who had committed the assault, and we're left at the end of chapter 13 with David um, having a, a daughter who has who has been assaulted, a son who is dead, and the son who has committed the murder has gone off um, and is basically in exile. And we're just kind of left hanging there. And so we're going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 14. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. And so Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of the Koa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king, asked, and the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. Your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death. 
for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on face of the earth. And the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. We're going to stop there for just a moment. Um, uh, be reminded that Joab is David's nephew. He's general of his armies. Um, we've seen him kind of popping in and out of stories so far. And, and basically, because he knows David well, he sees um, the, the turmoil and the pain and, the, and just kind of that David is conflicted over Absalom, who is gone, that he concocts a plan. And so he goes and he finds this, this wise woman who is apparently also a bit of an actress. Um, and he says, I want you to, to come before the king. And he puts words in her mouth. And, and we, we don't really know Joab's motives here. Most likely it was, it was good. Um, wanting to, to minister to David to see some reconciliation happen. And so we have, as, as Nathan came, the prophet, came to David after his um, affair with Bathsheba, right? And he tells the story of a poor man and a rich man and lambs. And, and David's anger is kindled in this parable. And then he realizes, right, Nathan says to him, like, you're the guy. Like, you're the one who's, who's done this. That, that Joab is taking a similar approach, that he has this woman come with a story that's a parable, looking to ask for the king's wisdom and hoping that David will then take that wisdom and put it back on his own life, right? Like that sometimes when we're so close to a situation, we can't see how it affects us, but we could give wisdom to someone else, hoping that David can, can give it and then go, oh yeah, me too, right? Me too. Um. And so as he is basically administering justice, one of the roles of the king, right? And we look back in chapter 8, verse 15, we're told that David administered justice and righteousness to all the people, right? Like that he would sit, and if in the local areas, and the local communities, if, if a situation couldn't be resolved, they would take it to the king. And so David is sitting there hearing from folks. There's probably a line of people. This woman has her opportunity, and she begins to tell this story. And in verse 8, we just kind of get a pretty um, typical response, right? Like you can imagine, it's not super personal. He just says to the woman, Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. Right? It's just kind of putting her off a little bit of, I've heard your thing, I'll consider it, I'll think about it, I'll let you know. Right? Like, and, and, and we're going to see now that she um, isn't going to, to take that answer. Because ultimately what she's doing is she's saying, listen, I've got two boys, one's dead, the other one did it, it wasn't intentional, it's manslaughter, it's not really murder, but the, the penalty is death. And the tribe in our area, they want to put him to death, and so she's asking for an exception to the rule. Like, listen, this will put out my husband's line. It's, my, it's the last coal, right? She uses that kind of imagery of a fire with one last coal, and we can stoke the fire back into existence, or we can snuff it out for good. So king, please don't snuff it out. Like, please don't put it out for good. He gives her an initial response. Now let's pick up in verse 9. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more. 
and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We're like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And the servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. And the king answered the woman, Do not hide anything from me, I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. And the king said, Is this the hand of Joab with you in all of this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me And it was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on earth. And so we have kind of this this melding of stories here, right? That she's telling a story that Joab has given her, but she also ultimately is really wanting to pull out, hey, David, this is you too. And they just kind of are interwoven in this section here, right? Like that she, he get, he, David gives her in verse 8 this kind of vague response, and she just doesn't, she pushes back, right? She says, well, wait a second, uh, that's, not, that's not good enough. Let me, let me speak a little bit more. So she's, she's bold here. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt. So she says, listen, if something's wrong, if there's guilt, I'll take the guilt off you, put it on my family, but I'm asking you just to do more than you've just said you'll do. And so then he responds to her, listen, if people bother you, send them to me, they won't bother you anymore. But that's not why she's there. She's there for a son, not for herself. And so she presses again. It's like, listen, I want you to say that you're going to protect my son. Verse 11, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. Not me, my son. And David finally says, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And so he is given the exception. The thing that she's come for that he doesn't have to give because the law is clear here, he gives the exception. And as soon as she gets the exception, she immediately turns and says, oh, by the way, I've got more to say. Hey, David, this is you. Like, the nation is depending on you, right? Like, we have a good leader and the throne, and the, and the legacy, and the lineage is going to be your family. And yet, uh, Amnon is dead. Absalom right, is exiled. Like, are you thinking that this doesn't just affect you, it affects our entire nation? Like, who follows you on the throne is significant for all the tribes, right? For all the cities. Are you considering this and not just how it affects you? You've made the exception. You can do it for Absalom. Like, bring him back. Right? She's She's bringing this to light in front of him. It affects 
All of us. And David being wise is like, hey, you didn't, you didn't just show up here to do this. Someone puts you up to it, and he immediately is able to discern that it's Joab. She doesn't deny it. So let's pick up in verse 21 and see David's response now to Joab. The king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this, go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on, the face, fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now all in Israel, now in all of Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head two hundred shekels by the king's weight. And there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar, and she was a beautiful woman. So we basically have now Absalom, the son of the king, who's, who's killed his brother in the protection of his sister Tamar. He's named a daughter after his sister. He's back. And we're, we're kind of being introduced to him again because he's going to play a prominent role coming up in the next several chapters. Um, and, and we're reminded that, that Absalom is, is a, a handsome dude. When it talks about the weight of his hair, it was like five pounds of hair a year, um, which would have just kind of been a sign of his virility, quite frankly. Um, and so this guy is, is, is handsome, and people are attracted to him. And, and we need to remember in 1 Samuel 16, 7, right, as, as David is going to be anointed, as others are coming, right, that they're like, well, this is surely who the Lord will choose, right? And it's the oldest, the strongest, the biggest brother. And God tells us what? I don't look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. We are reminded that Saul, the first king, who was a judgment on the people, right, was taller, was strong, right? Like the, the, the outward appearance. So this is really kind of a sign of something that's foreboding. The fact that it's talking about Absalom's looks here, right, is showing his vanity. Um, and it, it's saying that the, there are people who could be persuaded by this guy based on his appearance, not based on his character at all. Right, that it's going to take um, those who are following God, those who are godly, to see beyond powerful charisma, powerful looks, right, to see what's going on in someone's heart that we can be fooled by beauty. Um, and so let's, let's pick up and finish the chapter. Verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. And then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. And then he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. And Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servant set my field on fire? 
And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. And Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. And so he came to the king, bowed himself on his face, to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. All right, so Absalom, like here, is like, it's just childish, right? Like, you see, it's like a kid going, I can't get dad's attention. What could I do? Set something on fire, right? Like, like he literally is like trying to get Joab's attention. Hey, help mediate between me and my dad. Joab's busy. He won't come. He asks again. He won't come. So his best response is, well, if I set his field on fire, I better ask why I did that. Like, he'll have to talk to me then. Right? And so he sets his field on fire. Exodus 22 um, tells us, listen, if you set someone's field on fire, you've got to pay it back. Right? Like you gotta... And so basically Absalom's like, i got the money to do that. I can set that right, but at least I'll get a conversation. And so you just begin to see um, some petulance, some vanity, um, someone of like, is this the one we want on the throne? Is this the one we want on the throne? And we're just beginning to kind of get a sense of, I think things maybe aren't great here. It's been five years since Absalom killed Amnon. It's been seven years since the incident with Tamar. Right? Like, even though we're only covering a chapter or two or, or turning a page or two, years are flying by. And the question that we would have, right, now that um, Absalom has come to the king, he's bowed down before him, and we have this scene of David kissing him. And then it's kind of like, end scene. End. And you're like, ugh. Was that reconciliation or not? Like, is this, is this a good thing? Is this, is this not a good thing? What's, what's going on here? Right? That, it's, that there's complexity to it. That is, David, he's got one son dead, another son exiled that he's attempting to reconcile with, a daughter who's been abused, He's got his own sin and own culpability in this and that he has been extremely passive. He's got his own personal feelings, yet he's also thinking about the, the, the future of the nation and of the throne. Right? Like you can just begin to appreciate this is not a clear-cut, what-do-we-do situation. It's complex and it's nuanced. And so we end chapter 14 and you're like, okay, it's a strange chapter. Like, what, do, what do we do with this? And it's important for us, and it's part of the reason Dan has been teaching um, the class he has before service the last couple weeks, is that, that Scripture on almost every chapter, every story, is telling multiple stories. Right? That we would come to, to 2 Samuel 14 and kind of go, okay, what's it got for me? What's it got for us? But beyond that, we have the narrative is being pushed forward. The story of the nation of Israel and, and King David and how are we going to get to Jesus, right? Like that story is still going. And then above that, we have God who in 2 Samuel 7 has said, David, from your lineage will come the perfect kingdom, right? The perfect king who will have the throne forever. And we're going from this mess? Like God, how are you going to do that? How are you going to bring about all that we need and all that we're hoping for from David, like David is proving he's not the king we need. Right? Even though he is God's anointed and he has done tremendous things, he is far from a perfect man. And we've seen that his ruling 
And His judgment isn't always just and right and perfect. But God, You've promised that You're going to rescue us. And You're going to do it through them, through this people. This is like, it's a mess. What are we going to do? It's complex. It's messy. It's less than satisfying. Right? Like, that interaction with David and Absalom, like you can almost, um, if you're watching it as a show, you can almost see this crescendo as the son, after years, walks into the father, and then you're like, and then it's over. You're like, uh, I need more. Right? I need, I need more detail. Like, was, was it a kiss that had this look to it of like, vengeance is mine? Or was it a, a, an affectionate, like, son, you're back, embrace? Like, we're kind of left wondering. It's less than satisfying. And so I want us to go back to verse 17 for just a moment. And as the woman is speaking to David, she says this, The word of my Lord the King will set me at rest. Church, I think for us, this, this word, I, like, David, say it. You're the King. You can put me at peace. You can put me at rest. Like that's that's our desire. Like we want to be at rest. And we see in Second Samuel that the nation of Israel is not at rest. We see that David's own household is not at rest. And if we're honest, we understand that for most of us our lives are not at rest. That as we as we try to conjure and picture the scene here of David and Absalom, right, there's this sense that David has his arms crossed. And he's probably a little bit aloof. And even as he knows that Absalom is coming, right, like all these scenes of Tamar and Amnon and Absalom and his own sin and Bathsheba are running through his head and he's trying to figure out where do I stand? What am I going to say? What am I not going to say? Are we okay? My exiled son? And you can almost imagine him in the room not really looking at Absalom. Right? Like that he's, he's, he's distant and he's cold because he's trying to figure out what reconciliation looks like. What does it look like to to bring Absalom back in without completely rejecting Amnon? How does Tamar fit into this? Right, You can feel David's dilemma. It's been years. And I think in this scene, for many of us, it's the picture of how we think God views us. As we think about our lives and our sin and our struggle, and you go, well, how does God picture you today? Like when He thinks not about you as like all of us, but when He thinks about you, specifically you, what does He think? And I would imagine for many of us, the scene of David conflicted of like, I know what I have to do, what I should do, but what I don't want to do. Like, well, God's going to, He'll do something good for me, but He doesn't want to. He's frustrated by me. Like, He's angry with me. He's obligated to do, right? Like that's, we can, we can kind of paint that scene in that picture really easy. We're asking, is this how God sees us? Does He feel this way? Right? Like, and why wouldn't He? We're guilty. Like we have rebelled against His perfect and holy rule. When we can look at Israel and say, man, how foolish were y'all to say, to reject Him and say, we want a king like the nations. And yet we reject God, right, and say we want to rule our own lives. And we run it aground. Right, that our sin weighs us down and it haunts us. Um, I was talking with, with Carson even this week, and she 
Let's talk about, man, have you ever had a dream where you've done something bad and then you wake up and you're like, oh, thank goodness I didn't really do that. Right? And yet the thing is, is in life, we do those things. Right? And then, and then that sin holds us and it haunts us. And we're trying to figure out how do we find rest again? The question that the, the wise woman is asking David. How do we find rest and peace? Because we know that God is king. Right? He's holy. And He's perfect. We've seen even in First and Second Samuel, right when the ark falls and someone keeps it from falling, they drop dead when they touch it. Because God is holy. And He's other than and He's separate. We think of Mount Sinai, right? Like where the people are like, He's like, if you touch the mountain, you're going to die. As God is, like, is, is showing up. And so we have this scene of a king and we're thinking, God, what do you think about me? If you were to act like David here, I wouldn't, I think you would, it would be okay. And yet, we're reminded that even in David's sin, he's receiving grace. Right? Like that he did not surely die even when he has sinned. And Paul writes this in Romans 2. Verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and His forbearance and His patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Right? Like it's not His fearsome anger. It's His kindness. Like that His kindness is leading us to recognize our need and our sin and His good and holiness lead us to repentance, that we would be reconciled, that we would be made right with Him. It is not saying, I will crush you. It's saying, in my kindness, would you, would you come to me? And so we have these twin truths, that He is the King, and He is holy, right? And justice will be, will be paid. But that Jesus has done that for us, right? Like, listen again to Paul in Romans. This is Romans chapter 5. Beginning in verse 8. But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more will we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled will we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so the good news of 2 Samuel 14 is God is not acting like King David towards Absalom. He's not looking at us right with this shirk of like, I guess I have to. He loves us. And He loves us enough that He sent His Son, perfect, right, to be sin, who knew no sin, on our behalf, for our good and for our benefit. Like, he doesn't just say, fine, come on. He says, I love you. He's the prodigal's father with open arms running saying, look at what I've done. Look at how I've proven and demonstrated that I care for you and that I've loved you. I've made a way. Come to me, sons and daughters. Open arms, full embrace with a seat at the table. Like that is the, the perspective that God has. Now listen, He's king. And if you reject that call, there will be, right, judgment. But it's been offered. 
come and sit at the table. Be called son and daughter of the King. Come and walk. Like what love, what open arms that we can have trust and faith in Him that we can be seen and known and loved and belong regardless of what's in our closet, regardless of what sin and what past baggage we bring. And he says, like, I know it. And I've demonstrated that I love you. And it's my kindness that will lead you to repentance. Look back at verse 14. We must all die. We're like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Like this wise woman is saying, listen, we all know that we're all going to die. But God is working, working to make a way right, that we don't remain banished. Like we are deserving, our sin and rebellion, we are deserving of being banished and exiled from the king for all time. And yet he's made a way to bring the banished ones as sons and daughters into the throne room of the king for all time through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We've seen that David's not it. He's not the king. We needed a better one. And Jesus is that king who heralds in a perfect kingdom with perfect grace and justice and mercy and reconciliation and rest. And in His secure hand we'll stay. Nothing removing us from Him. Like that He'll met out justice rightly every time. That He'll bring rest. So that's why when He tells us in Matthew 11, 28-30, come, if you're weary and burdened and heavy laden, come, and you'll find rest. That's the kingdom that we're being called into, the kingdom that we belong to with open arms. Come and be a son and a daughter of the King. The church, the, the wrong response to this would be a flippant nod of like, yeah, yeah, Jesus does that. I intellectually assent. You go running into the arms of the one who's rescued you. The one who says you belong. The one who says you're mine. And I've taken care of it. And I've made you right with me. And you are reconciled because of what I've done. We go running into their arms to sit at the table. We don't deserve it, but we are loved. And His grace far outruns anything we've done. We hear it and we respond to it. Would you hear these words from Ephesians chapter 2? Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, in need of reconciliation. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You have been raised up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are His workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like His face towards us is grace and kindness and love and affection. For you, not just for them. For you, not just for that person who's pulled their life together. For you, to know the King. First John tells us He loved us first. And so He is worthy of our worship. And so church, we talked about salt and light to start the service. We do not run out into the world and say, come be like us. Come try harder. Come do better. Come see if you can be as good as me. We say, come and see Him whose face is shining on us whose love and kindness and mercy is available. Come know Him. Come belong. Like There's a place where you belong forever. And it's in His hand, in His kingdom. He is beautiful and worthy. And so would our affection be stirred? Would we see David's story here and see the reality of the life in the world that we live in, and would our heart cry out for something more? Right? Something more than what this world can offer. That we would be a part of His kingdom for all time. That our, our chins would be lifted. We would see Jesus beautiful, and our affection would be stirred for Him. Because He's rescued us, and He loves us, and it is more than enough. Let's pray. Father, thank You that we can find the beauty of the Gospel, of Your rescue, of Your plan, of Your nature, of Your character, of Your goodness and mercy to us in obscure passages in 2 Samuel. God, that we see our desire for rest and we see that You've laid a way for the banished ones to be a part of the kingdom and not not simply shoved in the corner, but as sons and daughters of the King with a seat at the table. God, give us eyes to see You as we read Scripture. And Father, in this moment, God, would we find ourselves either um, singing praise with our minds and our, and our hearts and our lips in agreement because we have been rescued by You, God, and that You have poured out Your affection upon us. God, or that we would hear You calling us potentially for the first time And God, that we would be convinced that your love and grace outruns our sin. God, would no one sit here today believing that they have missed their opportunity, that their sin has somehow negated your sacrifice, your demonstration of love, because they're still breathing, they're still here. God, would you unstuff ears? Would you soften hard hearts? God, that we would be a people who would hear You and trust You and follow You and give You all the glory and all the praise, not just in the songs we sing, but in the lives we live. Lord, we want to please You. In Jesus' name, Amen.